Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. If these resources have been a blessing to you, we would be honored if you would consider making a donation to our church building fund. To learn more about this unique challenge ahead of us and to partner with us for a gospel legacy in Missoula, please visit achurchbuilding.com. That's achurchbuilding.com. As KJ read, we're going to be in Psalm 19. Um, And this psalm, Psalm 19, is all about communication. Um, It's God's communication. It's his communication and his revealing of truth to his people. Uh, to humanity. And another way to put it is Psalm 19 is about God's condescension, God's coming down, God condescending. And now when we hear that word condescending, it has more of a negative tone to it um, as as we hear it, as we read it. Uh, And it's because when we hear it, we think about uh, an insult because there is nothing worse than a condescending boss, right? Someone who talks down to you because they think lowly of you. Um, like, you wouldn't be able to understand them unless they came down and spoke to you. I experienced, like, I grew up working for my dad a little bit, doing construction and, and uh, painting and some carpentry work, and it was the worst job because it was when my dad was condescending to me, just made, made the work itself and made the whole experience that much worse. And so we all have kind of that, that idea of condescension, um, but really, as we look at Psalm 19, and if we apply that word condescending to God, it's wholly appropriate. Because condescending is God, God's condescending is him coming down to communicate to us from his place in eternity, from his existence on his throne to come down to speak to us and communicate to us fallen and finite creatures in a way we're going to understand. See, for God to explain to us his own nature um, or even our own nature, it would be impossible if he tried to communicate it to us on his level. So God needed to condescend to communicate to us. Uh, look at it this way. I have a daughter, and her name's Harper. She's really, really cute. Um, she's about 18 months. And she started speaking, and as she started speaking, uh, she, she's really good with vowels, but she can't say consonants very well. And so some, a lot of her words, the consonants just get, you know, dropped. And so, like, water becomes wah-wah. Uh, we have these, these, like, Kodiak cake protein waffles, and she calls them wah o just wah um, and we try to teach her to say please, and she just says peas, and it's adorable, of course. But the point is, is she's also le- started to learn sign language, um, so like more and some of these other um, universal, like all done, to help her uh, communicate with us. And so as we are trying to teach her language, as we're trying to uh, parent her, we have to condescend to her level to communicate to her. We have to use words she knows, we have to use the hand motions, we have to point to things so that she can understand what we're trying to say. And so... As God is communicating to humanity in Psalm 19, as God's revealing himself, it's like an adult trying to teach a toddler language and communicate it with it. The nature of God's character, his attributes, the work he has done, the desires and delights of the Lord, all of it needs to be communicated to us in a way that we're going to understand it. And because God is so merciful and kind, it's exactly what he does. And we get a picture of it here in Psalm 19 as David writes this song as he writes this poem to be sung. And so in our passage this morning, we're going to see this. David's going to reflect on how God's revealing himself. He's going to reflect on it. He's going to marvel at it. We're going to see three ways that God reveals himself. First is the work of God through creation. The second is the word of God through scripture. And third is the witness of God through Jesus. Three points like a good Baptist, and they all start with W. So we're off to a good start this morning. Uh, So my hope for my message this morning is that it's twofold. It's instructive. Um, and that it produces wonder. It's instructive in that you and I can start to see how God has uh, revealed himself to us so that we might understand what he has for our lives, the purposes that he's given us, and wonder that the 
eternal God of the universe would come down and speak to us, that we were worthy, that he chose to lower himself to communicate to us, to give us specific wisdom on how to live life in a way that maximizes our joy and his glory, to seek a relationship with us personally. I hope that we, we, ultimately what this produces is the wonder that we might respond to God as David does at the end in this, just this, this overwhelming desire to honor and worship God. And so let's start with, with Psalm, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 6. Um, and we're going to read it, and then this is where we're going to see our first point. Psalm 19, verse 1. <clears throat> to the choir master, Psalm of David, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. I think we all whether Christian or not, can look at nature and we can marvel at the enormity of it all and we can marvel at the uniqueness, the phenomena that is this world we live on and the universe that it exists in. Whether we're Christian or not, we can agree that it's unique. We can agree that it's a phenomena. And, and for the Christian and for David as he opens this psalm, that uniqueness is actually expressed in God revealing himself. It's expressed as God communicating. Notice the specific words David uses in the first part of the verses. He says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day it pours out speech, and night to night it reveals knowledge. All this personified language, all this poetic language, all this poetic language to say that the existence of the skies and the stars and the moon and the sun and the earth and the seas and all the creatures, all of it, all this poetic language to say that God is powerful, that there is a God, that God is mighty, that there is glory to be had in this God. And look at the, the last word of verse one. The skies above proclaims his handiwork. That's where we get our first point. It's the work of God. This is God revealing himself through his work, in his work, through his creation. Um, so the first way David describes God's condescension to humanity is in the very act of creation itself. In creating Glacier, Grand Canyon, the Marianas Trench, all these vast and beautiful things we experience. But what is God revealing through creation? So he's revealing himself. God is saying, here I am, I'm here. But he's revealing himself. But what is he communicating? Because all of what God does that we can see, everything you and I can see that God does, is communicating something to us, and it's his condescension to us. And in creation, we can see his power. We can see his creativity. In the beautiful things we see, we can see the beauty of God. We see the ordering of day and night, the rotation of the planets, the organization of cells down to the smallest detail. We see order and, and meticulous care for detail on God's part. So when's the last time that you glanced over to Lolo Peak? And the first thing you thought of was the power and bigness of God. What about trees, just trees, trees with leaves? pine trees. Those are kind of lame. Trees with leaves. You looked at trees with leaves and you saw, you, you see them growing in the spring and they get wet as, as, as rain comes down. And as they grow in the summer, they become green, a vibrant green, and they get big. And then in the fall, they change colors to red and yellow and brown. 
And then now in the winter, we have this, this sort of naked beauty to the trees that dot the area. It's beautiful. When's the last time you looked at a tree and saw and marveled at the creativity of a God who would put a color wheel on trees? It's your planet. It's miraculous. If you've seen any of these recent um, Netflix or other uh, documentaries on nature, like uh, One Strange Rock or Planet Earth, they artfully describe this complexity. They artfully describe the beauty of the planet that we live on. They describe the multitude of topographies, the, the Arctic and the, and, the, and, and the desert, and the kinds of creatures that live in, in these areas, and how their cells are perfectly tailored to not just live in these areas, but thrive in them. Um, I saw a clip of actually watching the uh, One Strange Rock, and there's this, there's this biologist who's scuba diving off the coast of Mexico in the Caribbean, um, and she's studying coral, and she's describing how the coral reproduces, and it's actually once a year, at night, on a full moon, all of the coral in the area releases all of the, um, the reproductive cells, and, and they get a shot, a video of this, and she describes it as floating through space and the stars, because they're like glowing in the ocean, just millions and millions of these cells floating as she's swimming through them. And it's beautiful. It's awe-inspiring. Shows like that, the place we live, it provokes an awe and complexity and diversity that we see in the diversity of our world. It provokes awe at the basic functions, the reproductive function of coral. But there's a common thread to all of it. All of it's flooding our senses, telling us it's God telling us, here I am. Look at me. Look what I have done. Look how beautiful and big I am. But even beyond the existence of God, God saying, I'm here, it shows us, it declares, it declares and proclaims the glory and the beauty and the creativity and the order of God, the power of God, a God of details, a vast and infinite God. And we live in Missoula. We get... I mean, we are so lucky, more than most. We live in a place that many people dream of living in. And more than most, we get these various pictures of God declaring himself through creation. And we get it so that we might worship, as David does. We get it so that we might turn to the creator of it all and not just revel in the creation itself. Turn to Romans 1, verse 20 and 21 with me. Romans 1, verse 20, this is Paul speaking to a church. For his, he's talking about God, his in, invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although that they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. See, the first way God has revealed himself to us, condescended to us, is through the work of creation, that we might see his divinity and his power and his attributes, his big attributes. But in seeing this vast complexity and beauty, through an analytical mind or a creative one, whether you analyze it or whether you just enjoy the beauty, or both, either you see it and you marvel at the creator, or you see it and you revel in the creation itself. Like the Romans, you ignore the compulsion to look to the creator of it all and you enjoy the experience of it and look not, don't look past the experience of it, foregoing any implications it might have for the existence 
of a God or the glory of a God. Either you experience it and you want to know God, or you experience it and you consider the experience itself enough to satisfy you. And see, the problem is, is that creation itself isn't enough for us to arrive at knowing God. These Romans thought so, and that's where they went wrong. They chose to revel in the mere shadow of beauty, then look to the one that cast the shadow itself. So when you look around you, in this place, Missoula, what do you see? Are you compelled to know the God who created it with a breath and a word? Are you satisfied in the experience itself, having better things to do, more to do with your life? You see, David sees creation declaring the glory of God. But David knows that creation itself is limited to fully describe the God of the universe, which is why David turns to the second source of revelation and condescension, and it's found in verses 7 through 11. So read with me, starting in verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect. Excuse me, I'm actually going to take a drink of water really quick. The law of the Lord, verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Now, I want to look at this. I want to to walk through this twice here really quickly because I want us to pay attention because this is a rich and dense part of this poem. Look at the subject, what David is talking about here. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean. The rules of the Lord are true. All these words, with varying kind of nuances in the historical context of David's time, some of these words meant the the covenants and promises that God made to his people. Some of them referred to the the character and attributes of God himself. Uh, Some of them referred to the specific instructions God has given to his people. Um, And some of them referred to the, the law as a whole. But all of them, by David putting them all together in this beautiful song, David is pointing to one unified subject. That's the scriptures. All of that is the scriptures. And now, look at back, let's walk through one more time, and look at what David says about the scriptures. Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, The commandment of the Lord is pure. The fear of the Lord is clean and enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Perfect, sure, right, enduring forever. If we do the same exercise with that as we did with the subject, we can arrive at at a synthesis of it all. And the best word I could come up with is just fullness. The scriptures are the fullness of God revealing himself. It's the fullest and most complete picture David had of who God was, who he is, what he's like, and his intended designs for man. And that's our second point tonight. This is the second way God's revealed himself to his people is in his word through the scriptures. 
We know by looking around ourselves on a mountaintop. I went to Alaska this summer and hiked this pass called Hatcher Pass. It was awesome. You could see for like, it felt like hundreds of miles, glaciers and like you could see sitting on a mountaintop with your toes in the, in the avalanche lake up at Glacier. By looking around yourself, you could tell that there's so much more to be had with it. And David poetically saying, there's, there is. And you can find it in God's word. You can find it in God's word. Romans 1 says we can clearly see the power and the divinity and the beauty behind creation. But creation itself doesn't explicitly speak to the God of justice. It doesn't speak to a God of mercy and grace. Creation, it doesn't mandate a specific pattern of living for his creatures. It doesn't tell us what God desires for us. It doesn't promise eternity, and it doesn't promise a savior. But the word of God does, and it does so to the fullness, to perfection. See, God's word is his coming down, his condescension to speak to us, and it's the best kind of condescension that he would consider us worthy. He would choose himself to lower himself, to just speak to us is a miracle. In our own language, from Moses to David to the prophets, to the apostles, to Paul, the Bible is God speaking to us that we might know not merely that there is a God, but we might know what that God is like, we might know what that God has designed for us that we might know how to please him and worship him, that we might know more about ourselves. See, creation is not a substitute for scripture. There is no substitute for scripture. Your life experiences are not a substitute for scripture. An education or a career is not a substitute for scripture. A TED talk or a self-help seminar or book is not a substitute for scripture. There are no substitutes for Scripture because it is in Scripture that God has most explicitly revealed himself to his people. So let me ask, let me ask this. How, how many of us have sought to know God apart from his word? How many of us have sought a relationship with him apart from the promises of the Lord Jesus in his word? How many of us have focused on what God has done and thought that's sufficient totally ignore what God has said in his word. David is marveling at what God has said in his word. And look at how he counts that value in verses 10 and 11. Verse 10, rather. More to be desired are they, he's talking about the law, the testimony, the precepts, the, the, the commandments, the word. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey, and drippings of the honeycomb. See, what David's doing is he's using the whole first part of the psalm, verses 1 through 6, and he's contrasting it with verses 6 through 12, 11. He's taking the revelation of God in creation and contrasting it to the revelation of God in his word. And he sings that God's word is more valuable than the most valuable substance in all of creation, gold a substance that transcends economies and exchange rates, that's constantly growing in value, that the most precious part of creation to humanity isn't more valuable than God's word. That the sweetest, the most decadent riches in honey and honeycomb of sweet peaks 
isn't more valuable than God's word, isn't more sweeter than God's word. See, those of us that call ourselves Christians, we want to know God so badly. And yet too often we ignore the sweetness and the richness and the value of what God has done in speaking to us in our language. See, if you feel distant from God, if you feel like you're stagnant, like you're not maturing like you should be, like you're not growing like you've expected to, if you're reading books and listening to sermons and trying to live your life faithfully, but you feel stuck, it's probably because you're neglecting the most valuable thing God has ever given us. One of the most valuable things God has given us in his word. There is no substitute for the specificity, the clarity, and the comprehensiveness of God's word. That's why Peter says it's sufficient for life and godliness. There is no sweeter book. There is no more valuable resource. See, we are infants. We are children. We are incapable of understanding God apart from him condescending and communicating to us. See, just like it's impossible for Harper to understand me as I'm talking right now, we cannot understand God without him coming down to us, and he did that in his word. He's condescended to us in our language that we might know him. And more than just knowing truth about God, we might experience personally what it means to live in that truth and that joy. And there's joy to be sure, because <clears throat> while the product of seeing God in creation is, are these big ideas, that, that there's a God, that he's creative, that he's, uh, that he's big, right? We can see these big truths in creation, but in his word we get even more depth. Let's walk through seven through nine one more time. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. And the rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. There's such a depth of personal joy and satisfaction in this soul-reviving book. We'll never get to the depths of that. We can never reach the depths of what this has for you and for me personally. But there's a problem, right? There's a problem because we're sinners. And that's where David goes next. See, in our weakness and a broken weakness and brokenness, as verse 11 says, moreover, by them is your servant ward, and keeping them is their great reward. We don't keep them. We don't always obey. We don't always cherish God's word as we are intended to. And so David goes in verse 12, 12 through 13, and where God revealed himself as uh, big and beautiful, where God revealed himself in his word, David reveals himself as so deeply broken that even he can't see how deeply broken he is. Let's read 12 through 13. It says, David, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. See, there's, David's saying there's so much wrong with me, I can't even see it all. That there, my sin, there's so much sin in my soul that it's hidden from me. There's evil that I presume to have a handle on, and I don't. Or evil that I presume doesn't even exist in my heart, but it does. See, we are so deeply fallen creatures, and God's word exists so that our souls might be revived and our hearts might rejoice, but when we don't see it and when we don't 
obey it. That's often not our experience with God's word. Because we're blinded by our hidden faults and our presumptuous sins. Because here's the thing, there's, there's almost certainly more to your sin than what you could see. This is coming from a man, David, who used his power as king to oppress and abuse another man's wife, got her pregnant, and then murdered the guy to hide it all. That dude is saying there's even deeper sin inside of his wretched heart. There are desires lurking beneath the surface of our hearts that would surprise us. And it's those desires that supplant our desire to know God. See, while God's word is perfect and pure and righteous, we are not. We are incapable of meeting to the fullness of the fullness of Scripture. We are incapable to to obey as we ought, both because of our conscious selves, because we choose not to, and because of the hidden, deep recesses of our hearts that we don't even know are there. And David felt this tension. He felt this tension of a condescending God who would choose to reveal himself to us, who loved us so much that he'd communicate to us, give us his word. And then a man that was so deeply broken and sinful, he could never live up to that perfect word. This is why David cries out for God's help. This is why David says, declare me innocent. Keep back your servant from sin. Let the words of my mouth be pleasing to you. He's asking God to help him where he is incapable, where he's incapable of fulfilling the righteous requirements of God's word. In other words, David can't do it. You see, if we consume only creation as God's revelation, as the Romans did, we're going to be under judgment. But if we consume only creation and his word, we're going to be left frustrated. Because even with the two together, we get instructions that we are inevitably going to fail to follow. We'd be left in the same place as the Romans, under judgment, because no human being can fulfill the law of God perfectly and fulfill it as God has told us to. The beauty of the psalmist, David knew there'd be more. An even greater revelation than creation, an even greater revelation than God speaking through his word, an even greater condescension. Look, verse 14. <clears throat> Sorry, one more water. <clears throat> verse 14. <clears throat> let the words of my mouth and let the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Ultimately, let David, ultimately what David was looking forward to was a redeemer. He knew so because God had promised him personally. God had promised Abraham. God had promised Moses. A redeemer would come. A greater condescension would happen. A redeemer that could could fulfill the fullness of the law. See, we're privileged. We're so super privileged to live this side of the cross. We're going to look back through the gospel of Jesus because we get to read this psalm and every other psalm through what Jesus did. And so David didn't have the specific clarity of the cross, but he knew that a Christ would come. And that's our third point, that David longed for a redeemer, and we have that redeemer in Jesus. The third way that God reveals himself. 
is the witness of God through Jesus. In the ultimate act of condescension, Jesus made the descent from his throne into the flesh. And as Philippians 2 said, even to death, um, even to the point of death on a cross. John 5, verse 37 through 40. Jesus is talking himself. He's talking to some Pharisees. And these are Pharisees that love God's word. They love the Torah. They love the law. They're doing everything they can to follow the law, and they think they're doing pretty good. So John 5, 37 through 40, this is what Jesus says to those guys. And, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. He, his voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe in the one whom he sent. Here's the verse. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, the Pharisees thought they could have life through the revelation of God's word. They thought they could do it, fulfill it well enough, that they could be good enough, that if they were successful enough and followed God well enough, that they could be redeemed without a redeemer, without the greater condescension David was looking forward to. But the law and the word of God don't exist so that we might have confidence in our own abilities They exist so that we might be convicted of our hidden and broken sin and might look to the cross of Jesus for redemption. Because the whole, the word itself, as Jesus said, is bearing witness to Jesus. See, the whole Bible, it points to Jesus. Old Testament points forward, New Testament points back. It all points to Jesus. I asked earlier if if you're frustrated, if you're frustrated by your lack of growth or maturity, if you felt stagnant or distant from God, Sometimes it's because we don't cherish our Bibles as we ought, because we're not striving to know God deeply in his word. But often that frustration persists when we do dive into God's word because we're focused like the Pharisees on what we are capable of, on what inside here we can do instead of seeing Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. The whole book is about Jesus, not us. See, more than just a third point of revelation here, both creation and the word point to Jesus. The work and the word of God funnel together in Jesus. Look at Romans 8, verse 22 through 24. Romans 8, verse 22. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we are saved. See, creation itself is looking forward to when Jesus would come back and restore all things, where there is no more dying, where there are no more forest fires in California, no more earthquakes, flash floods and freezes, where there is no more snow anywhere, of any kind, because snow's the worst. All of creation is looking forward to Jesus. But even more than pointing to Christ so that we all might have this common experience of seeing creation as pointing to Jesus, they both work together, the word and the work of God, to engage us on a personal level with Jesus. Look at 2 Corinthians 4. 3 through 6. 
This is Paul speaking. And even if our gospel is veiled, he's talking about people that can't see the gospel, they don't see Jesus. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the Christ, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants, for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, that's creation, has shown into the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ personally. Everything God has done and said funnels to the special and unique revelation of Jesus to you personally, relationally, in your heart. And if you haven't seen this before, maybe this is God showing it to you. Maybe this is God revealing it to you, helping you see it. And if you do think that might be you, if you're seeing this for the first time, find an elder or a pastor or the person that brought you or even this person sitting next to you and ask them to help you process and see what it is God's showing you. See, because if the greatest truth God could, could insert into creation and the very word of God was found in Jesus himself, then the greatest truth that your life can build to is Jesus himself. Close out the psalm with me. Psalm 19, verse 14. <clears throat> Once again, excuse me. <clears throat> Every time I read, I think it's some H2O. <clears throat> All right. <clears throat> psalm 14, or Psalm 19, verse 14. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. See, most of this song that David writes is about what God declares about himself through creation and through his word and as we see through Jesus. But what David closes with is what he then declares. What he declares with his words, with his outer self, and what he declares inwardly as he meditates. See, the only way to be acceptable in the sight of God is if he sees us through the blood of Jesus. Because as we've already seen, it's not enough to just see that there's a God, and it's not enough to try and fulfill the purpose God has for us, because we can't. We need the rock and redeemer David needed. We need Jesus. See, David's hope for his life, his inward and his outer life, is that it would produce exactly what creation and scripture do. A bold declaration of God's glory and redemption through his grace and mercy in the gospel. So what we want from our own lives should be the same. What is your what is your life declaring? What does your life say? What does the way you speak say about what you believe and what you cherish? What do your thoughts say? How does how you spend your money say about what you cherish and believe? Spend your time. What does that say about what you cherish and believe? Because there are a lot of competing hopes. There are a lot of competing hopes and success in school and career, a stable and thriving marriage, kids that obey and reflect well on us as parents, a house that shows we're put together so that our neighbors know we're responsible. For some of us, it's outward. For some of us, it's inward. It's about what we get out of our own lives. We want comfort. We want joy and security and happiness, purpose and meaning. 
You see, whether it's to ourselves or to other people, our lives are declaring something. They're saying something about who we are and what we believe, and it's really just a matter of what it is our lives are saying, what it is our lives are revealing. See, if the light of the gospel of the glory of Jesus is not at the very top of that list, then we're missing the purpose God has given us in creation, in his word, and through Jesus. So ask for help. Ask for help from your brothers and sisters to see those hidden crevices of your heart you can't quite get into. Ask for help to, to subject those presumptuous sins to the gospel. And ask for help from God to discern where you are weak and to empower you to proclaim as the skies do the glory and the majesty of God. Let's pray. Father God, thank you again for this sweet and valuable word, this sweet and valuable book. Lord Jesus, I pray that as your words penetrate our hearts, as they penetrate our minds, Lord, that they would produce something worthy to you, that our lives would be given in worship, in sacrificial love and care, so that our lives would speak and proclaim and pour out the glory of God as creation itself does. Help us to see you clearly when we do read our words. Lord, help us to see Jesus when we look at our failures. Help us come on bended knee as we inevitably fail to follow you as we should. Lord, most of all, we are grateful. We are grateful that you would reveal yourself to us, that you can come down to us, condescend and speak to us. And Jesus, we are most of all grateful that you would come, even to the point of death on the cross. So let us cherish your revelation. Let us cherish what you've done in condescending to us. In Jesus' name, amen.